Osai, and this is my podcast where I take on themes exploring culture and society from the perspective of Nigerians in diaspora. This episode broadly explores the idea of Nigeria's national consciousness. And on the episode with me today, I have Chukudi Okone. He is a writer, designer, and creative strategist with a keen interest in Nigerian history. I found his work on The Republic, a magazine that covers social political commentary, discourse, and writing on Nigerian issues. Some of his work includes uh, On the National Red Line, where he talks about this idea of uh, Nigeria's non-negotiable unity as purported by uh, previous Nigerian leaders. He also talks about Obafemi Awolowo's complicated legacy and his ideology. Okay, so what's on the episode? We discuss how the country came to be and for what reasons. To that end, we reveal the Nigerian identity came from fighting against the colonial government. And we talk about the pivotal role Nigerian women played in establishing that mindset. These were market women in the late 1920s and 30s, essentially fighting against uh, excessive exploitative taxation. Later on, we decipher the constitutional decrees reluctantly imposed by the colonial government. In Nigeria's fight for more representation and autonomy, we forced the hand of the colonial government to give us a seat at the table. As a result of that, they gave us more opportunities and more rights to essentially speak. They still found a way to uh, sow division by cutting out women from that process, as well as uh, creating legal and political structures that incentivized infighting. Inevitably, these laws had their pros and their cons, and we explore the impact of that on what is Nigeria's national consciousness today. So the question I'm really asking here is how exactly did Nigeria's identity emerge, and how and how and why is it so fractured today? Enjoy the show. interesting before we jump in, we find particularly interesting um, as we're doing research for this uh, episode. Yeah, I found I found a lot of things interesting. I mean, I, I finally got around to watching uh, um, Journey of an African Colony. And, uh, right, I actually went back and was watching a couple episodes again um, this yeah, past no, week too. It's, it's fantastic, fantastic work by, by Mr. Cheshire. Yeah. Very, uh, very enlightening. Very, um, I love the angle he, he went at it with. You know, I love that right. it was also very accessible. You know, it wasn't uh, it was a documentary, but I think it was as interesting as you know as as any TV show you can you can get out there. So yeah. Right. It definitely, it definitely did not. You know, the sound effects were you know very dramatic too, right? Very dramatic. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, a lot of people complain about it, but I kind of liked it. <laughs> I, I, I really, I really liked it. He really built. I mean, I know, I know exactly what happened as we were, but right. I was as if I myself in a lot of suspense just because of the dramatic effects. I mean, that just goes right. to show that it's all about execution, right? So, it really is. It, it yeah. really is. Oh um, yeah, and I definitely, I definitely thought about his stuff as I was having, you know, thinking about 
this piece as well. Um, it's also kind of what made me focus on later because I think you already did such a good job uh, covering everything that happened from, you know, amalgamation up to this point. But for me, I, I, I kind of want to start digging in the weeds a little bit, you know. So, um, yeah, let's let's jump into it. Okay, so on this episode, uh, I'm looking to unpack the decade leading up to Nigeria's independence. We explore some of the pivotal rulings, movements, and events that led up to Nigeria attaining self-governance from the British for the first time in over a century. Um, and today I have with me Chukudi Okone. Uh, he's a designer um, and also a writer for the Republic Journal. So it's has got a lot of interesting pieces, and you should go check them out. And one of my favorites is the, uh, the Irony of History, uh, where you explore uh, Awolowo's our journey through leadership and fight for independence. Um, I like that focus on the ideology as well. Uh, I think that's really important and it kind of informs where I'm going to be approaching today's episode from. Um, Chukudi, welcome. Do you have any, you know, words to say and <laughs> to, to the people? Um, thanks, Osai. I'm super, super, super excited to be um, doing this with you. Um, I think these are important conversations to have, even as um, you know, as uh, the younger generation of Nigerians are becoming um, a lot more politically aware. I think these are important, you know, conversations to you know to address um, because if, if we don't know where we're coming from, it's going to be hard to chart a course for the future, right? So yeah, super super stoked to be here and uh, looking forward to what we come up with today. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for joining me. And it's, it's, it's an honor. Um, and I'm excited to see hear your takes on uh, some of the questions I have uh, for you. So, let you know, like when I was thinking about this, right, uh, I was trying to contextualize the nature of leadership, foreign and domestic, during that colonial period, particularly around when Lugard, uh, you know, mer- uh, amalgamated the country in the northern and southern protectorates. Like, I, I wanted to just figure out, okay, so who were the leaders there? Who did they tap to, to, uh, to kind of rule the country? And what were the motivations behind that? And how did that evolve as we, you know, basically uh, started to fight for self-governance and independence? Um, so one thing I found out interesting, though, is that prior to uh, our amalgamation, Lugard was in charge of the Northern province, which we, we know. Uh, but due to the dwindling resources and an ability and an inability to, to turn a profit, even with financial support from the Southern Protectorate, uh, it, it made sense to them that the North and South should be merged. But I always question whether <laughs> who that profit was for, right? And like it definitely wasn't for Nigerians. Um, it was more likely for the you know Niger Company, which he worked for, and ultimately the Queen in England, and. So, so to me, that was already flawed in terms of the incentive to merge the country together. And I'll be interested to see what your take is, right? Um, but in addition to that, it seemed like he had established indirect rule um, and leveraging the sole native authority um, in the north, um, which, you know, could be an emir, a sultan, or whatever local leader. And they used those leaders to collect tax, taxes and impose British interests on the people. This worked well because of the existing religious basis for authority, the formal code of Sharia law, and somewhat centralized apparatus, which was the legacy of Usman Danfodio, who had essentially conquered that region before. Um, when he attended this in the south, 
uh, it was a much different reaction. What what was your perspective, uh, you know, of Lugard going in? Right. I, I think it's really interesting to, I mean, to consider Lugard and maybe a little bit of the precursor. I mean, I know the, I know what we're considering here is um, the decade right before Nigerian independence. But if we dial things a little bit back, um, I think we have to mention, uh, you know, what 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 political scientists call the scramble for Africa, um, eighteen eighty six, I think. You know, essentially where um, where European nations and you know European superpowers in, in particular, um, you know, decided to carve out African land, you know, for themselves. And there was this notion of, I mean, what they basically why they basically did that was to avoid you know, direct uh, violent confrontation between each other. Um, so you already had people who were carrying out expeditions in Africa. You had, you know, the French, you had the German, you had the, uh, the Portuguese. British, yeah, Portuguese and so on and so forth. Um, so what they basically did was, yeah, let's not fight amongst each other. Let's find a way to carve out, you know, African land for ourselves. Um, what is so interesting about it is that there, were, there was no African representative. You know, we didn't have a say as to who got to occupy our land, about whether we wanted our land occupied, and so on and so forth. Um, so essentially, it was carved out by, by on the basis of um, who had, you know, what is called effective occupation, right? So if you if you were able to, uh, uh, you know, prove that you had a presence in in, in these areas, and that land was essentially uh, uh, given to you. Um, so what the British now did was to um, partner with um, the Royal Niger Company, um, you know, to uh, establish effective, you know, effective occupation in several parts of Africa, most, uh, you know, significantly West Africa, right? So that was sort of how, uh, sort of how, you know, colonization, um, at least formally, um, started, right? So, of course, I mean, there's this... Uh, uh, we all know, you know, by this point that they, they were not here for uh, for benevolent reasons, right? They they mm-hmm. considered it an extension of the empire. They wanted to extract as much as possible, you know, for the British Empire. They wanted to uh, expand the empire. They wanted to extract resources. They wanted to, you know, increase their wealth essentially, you know. So they did this by the conquest of war. They would enter a place. Um, they would sack the regions. They would wage war and then they would establish, you know, an indirect, you know, um, system of rule. Um, and that was really where, um, you know, Lord Lugard uh, made a name for himself, if you like. Um, fought several wars in several parts of of Africa, um, especially what he's most known for is, is the wars he fought uh, in the northern region. Um, you know, the, the, the northerners didn't, didn't give up without a fight. But after they essentially saw that, you know, they were faced with, I mean, it was not, I don't think that the British were necessarily uh, anything, any more sophisticated in terms of, uh, you know, political machinery. Uh, what they had, what they had better and more were guns, you know, the way they had gone to right. in the Northern people. And that's how colonization started. Anything else is just, uh, is just, you know, an, 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 a periphery consideration. The Northerners were gunned. You know, other parts of Nigeria were gone, and that's how colonization started. Um, so yeah, that's really how that's really how uh, you know Nigeria, as we know it, came into be. It came into be by virtue of, of military conquest and later administrative, you know, and religious and so on, uh, um, supplanting, supplanting of ideas. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much how we how we go where we are. Okay, so I'm curious though, uh, something that Lugard did while he was in the north was essentially establish the sole native authority. He started a system called uh, the indirect rule system, where they would tap local emirs, sultans, or just a local leader to collect taxes and impose British interests on the people. Right, so. This essentially worked well while he was in control of the north because of the existing religious basis for authority, a formal code of Sharello, and somewhat centralized apparatus, which was a legacy of Usman Danfolio. I say all of this to say that uh, it, it seemed like that idea of indirect rule system worked effectively for the northerners. But when he merged the country together or amalgamated country together, uh, it didn't have the same effect in the south, in the southwest and the southeast. What, what, what is your perspective on, on that? Right. I think that's a very, uh, you know, really interesting you know, thing to point out. Um, ultimately, I think it's down to the, to the sociopolitical uh, apparatus that existed in the North, right? So the North essentially was made up mostly of, you know, um, House Afulani population. Again, most of whom were already under the feudal system and um, where they had, you know, a centralized um, leadership. Um, most of them spoke Hausa. Um, of course, minorities here and there, but you know, by and large, most of them spoke Hausa. Most of them were Muslims. Um, so it was it was really easy to um, to galvanize a system of indirect rule. Quite different a situation when you consider um, you know what would later become the southern region and the eastern region, um, who were governed by. Um, who had different forms of, gov of governance, basically. Um, of course, in the Western region, you had Obas, but each Oba um, had, you know, each each part of Yoruba land essentially had its own deity. You know, even neighboring neighboring villages had their own, you know, individual deities. So to establish a, a very, you know, top to bottom down central leadership was a bit more difficult than it would have been in the North. Um, the East, of course, was a different ballgame entirely. Um, uh, Igbo people have a saying, um, which means um, Igbo people know no king. You know, so the the, the notion of the Eze as as a central ruler is actually a colonial uh, a colonial machination, right? Um, Igbo yeah. people were essentially were, were ruled or run by you know a council of administrators. Um, so there was nothing like, there was really nothing like royalty, you know, in in Igbo land. In the same vein, you know, it was also a, a pantheistic, uh, um, you know, a religious setting where you had, you know, different uh, deities, different gods and goddesses, and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a lot in a, in a republican society like that. It's a lot more difficult to conquer. It's a lot more difficult to uh, to to get alliances that would be far-reaching. Um, everybody kind of had their own little territory. Everyone kind of had their own little um, council of leaders. Um, it was a lot more difficult in those parts than it would have been in the north. And of course, something that's worth mentioning is, mentioning is that a, a, a sort of an, an agreement that was struck um, between uh, the northern uh, Emirates and you know other and, and the, the British colonizers was that um, we we make you leaders, we governize your your thrones and so on and so forth. And of course, you extract a system of taxation which already exists. Um, but we just, you know, carried that through. So you are now sort of um, protectorates of the British Empire, as it were, right? Um, but in in return, 
we will limit the proliferation of culture, that's of British culture, we will limit the proliferation of, uh, of British you know, religion, Christianity, and we will limit it severely to those regions. Of course, the, the, the effect of that is that, you know, by and large today, in terms of being, uh, you know, religiously and culturally pristine, um, the North is perhaps more similar to, the North today is perhaps more similar or, more, or has more in common with the ancient North as than you would have perhaps in the West and in the East. Um, the West and the East have been, you know, culturally assimilated, you know, religiously assimilated as well to, um, you know, to the colonizers. Um, quite a different story um, in the North. On the flip side of that, of course, religion, um, rather um, education has also found its, um, you know, we can even call it Western education if you like. But the fact is that it's, it's a universally recognized um, system of, of education now. It's found it um, a little bit more difficult to penetrate the North than, you know, it's, it's, it did in the East and in the, and in the South. Um, so yeah, just by way of pros and cons, that sort of, you know, what exists now and what existed in the past. Right. Um, I think, I think it was interesting because, you know, it seemed like Lugard's agreement with the Northern Sultans, right, was that, yeah, if we, if we agree to merge the country together, we won't allow any missionaries come up north, right? And the missionaries, yes, basically brought in some Western ideals, which they were clearly uh, uncomfortable with, but also brought in uh, brought education, which they also rejected. So, when, like, just kind of what you're saying, when when that happens and you already have that precedent set, there's there's just a complete there's an unbalance. Uh, there's just an there's just an imbalance already going straight into the mix. So I feel like that really ends up rearing its head later on in the uh, in the future, especially when we are we are fighting for independence. switch gears here a little bit, right? Um, what do you think were some of the more pivotal events leading up to, to you know, either around the 1940s or before the 1940s that you felt may have impacted like culturally, social culturally, um, Nigerians? Right. I, I think that's another really important um, thing to, um, you know, to explore. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I can start a little bit earlier. Um, I mean, as you as as you rightly said, um, the, the 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 decision to amalgamate Nigeria was as a matter of administrative expedience, right? It was easier to um, administer Nigeria as as you know as Nigeria, you know, the Nigeria we know today, um, than it was to administer it as you know what was initially the colony of Lagos and you know the Northern Protectorate and then the Southern the Southern Protectorate. It was easier to just have one Nigeria than for the sake of our administration. It's also important to note that I think the, the World War One was 1914 to 1918 and 1919. Um, roughly, yeah. roughly, amalgamation happened in 1919. Um, so of course, after a war, you are you are cash strapped and you're looking for ways to um, to rebuild, you know, whilst also saving costs, right? So that's another um, probably was another consideration. Um, the empire has just put, uh, fought a protracted war. How are we trying to save costs for the empire? So that that played its part. 
similar story when you get you know closer to um, um, the 1960s. Um, actually, the 19, 1940s down to the 1960s are considered um, by political scientists to be the decolonization era, um, where most um, African countries that are independent today, um, you know, gained their independence. And something that is another thing that is uh, quite telling is the fact that again, um, that was that was the period of World War II, right? So 19, I think World War II was 1938 or 39 down to 1945, right? right. So after fighting that war, um, the empire was weakened, you know, not just the British Empire, but the French Empire as well. Um, you know, all the African superpowers had fought wars, um, others allies or you know, on the on the on the German side. Um, they were weakened, they needed to rebuild. Um, so with that, you know, there was also this swell of nationalism and this, there was a, 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 that's amongst African countries. This happened for a number of reasons. Um, first reason, or maybe not the first reason, but one of the reasons is that the place or the, the, the part that African nations, that troops from African nations actually played is often discounted in, you know, in the general understanding of history, yeah. Yeah, of history of World War II. Africa played a massive, massive part. I think Nigeria alone contributed something like 250,000 troops, you know, towards the war, um, specifically in Burma and in, and in India. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Nigerian troops died in that war. Um, that was not our war to fight. Um, you, one can argue that, um, you know, win or lose, the war would have had implications on African nations, but by and large, that was... That was a, a, a European war, right? Um, it was not right. a war. It would, have, yeah. it would have only affected us by virtue of the Europeans being in Africa. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, so so we lost troops in that war, and you know these are forgotten. These are forgotten. In, in fact, in the war mem- in the war memorials, where where they are they are mentioning you know the, the countries that um, that lost troops and were sacrificed a lot, you would have something like uh, you know or India and Burma. Um, this and that, Sri Lanka, and then you have Africa, you know, <laughs> but Africa is not a country. Africa is, is made up of nations, of individuals, of fighters. People lost sons, people lost fathers, people lost brothers, right. and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the people who are at home and um, who didn't fight the war directly still suffered economic consequences of the war. And the British really, really taxed their colonies to support the war efforts. And there were shortages, such shortages in food, you know, so even people who are not directly, you know, combatants in war still suffered, you know, and the consequences of that war. Um, another thing to consider would be the individual, uh, the pockets of individual resistance that were probably not planned collectively, but showed these people who were, you know, under the jagged of British imperialism that they actually had a voice that they could use. Um, Things like you know the um, the, the market march the you know of, of the Abba women in in I think 1939 1929 was it um, 1929 so so okay so we basically just hit the 1940s right and you want to you want to take us back to the 1929 uh, like basically early 1930s correct yeah yeah I'll, I'll kind of just mention it um, as as something that was. That started out somewhat innocuously, but what, that, that became part of um, something that contributed to um, national consciousness and the drive towards like this national, this drive for independence. 
this um, this sort of pride in 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 to be to be Nigerian, you know, whether it was, you know, regardless of the fact that, you know, we were put together against our will by British. So how do you think how do you think the uh, the women's war of nineteen twenty nine uh, inspired that exactly? Um well I think that was the first that was the first organized resistance, right? Typically, what you'd have, I mean, uh, something, morale is very important when it comes to military conquest, right? And of course, we've already discussed the fact that the British entered Nigeria as a result of, you know, by virtue of their military, you know, and the, the, the you know, in terms of military weaponry, they were superior. They outgunned right. the, the Af- uh, you know, the, the African colonies that they encountered. So what you really have is then a cultural supplanting where you where the people, the inha- inhabitants of the place you're colonizing starts to feel a little bit inferior, and because they were they've been outgunned, right? You've lost the war, you know you are feeling inferior. There's the the sociocultural implications of that are very far-reaching. But for the first time yeah. since since you know the beginning of colonization, people stood up and said no to the to the powers that be as it were, and started with. The market women. I don't. I don't think it comes any more or any less. Uh, when you're talking about the most unlikely of places that such a thing would rise from, you know, you probably wouldn't think of that. But yeah, they said no to taxes. Um, they said yeah, women were typically not taxed, you know. And then the the British wanted to start imposing taxes on women, which were quite steep, you know. And so they had these things called warrant chiefs. The warrant chiefs were. <laughs> I don't know. I call them snitches in, in today's technology. People who work who work. <laughs> well, I think I think I think they they, they you know it, it ties into what we're we're talking about earlier, right? Like we're mm-hmm. uh, the, so with that so native authority system when they tried to bring it to the south and the southwest they they did it with the Abbas, right? And yeah. southeast they they had no option, like you were saying, just because of um, the mindset of the easterners and just the the approach to culture, right? So yeah. they essentially tapped. You know, people with influence or money or power uh, in in each of these in each of the tribes and the villages, and essentially establish them as warrant chiefs. Is that is that your understanding as well? Yeah, pretty pretty much, um, pretty much. Um, you know, apart from apart from that, I mean, again, people with that kind of influence, um, of course, it varies from it probably varies from place to place, from person to person. But people with that kind of influence might be a bit resistant. Um, if I can draw a parallel. Um, in in the book, you know, I'm sure we're all familiar with things fall apart. You might have thought that they would have tapped someone like Okonkwo to be a warrant chief, but someone like Okonkwo was very resistant of, you know, the encroaching, um, you know, uh, British culture because he was already a person of repute and of standing in the society. So I, I kind of think it was even more likely that they would have tapped people with people who were pandering to their to their you know, pandering to this new way of life that was coming, pandering either, either, either as a factor of defeatism, in other words, is already coming, so we might as well, you know, be politically savvy and, and embrace it. Or people who are pandering in the sense that I have some influence and some power and I want to collude with these guys to, in, to increase my influence and power. So it was one of the two. But in this case, I think it was the latter because the, the, the fellow in question, the warrant, the warrant chief in question, who was, you know, basically, who basically uh, inadvertently kickstarted, you know, what would be known as as the women's uh, the women's war, 
um, was someone who um, I don't was someone who I think would fall into the category of people who you know perhaps didn't have much social clout and probably the entire claim to fame was that he was a warrant chief, right? So what he, what he essentially did was that um, he he uh, he met a woman and she was a widow, right? And you know regardless of the fact that women were not taxed, yeah, I think it was very telling that he decided to start with a widow. He essentially asked her to count her her property, her produce, and you know her you know her property, and um, wanted to tax her based on that. And then she responded and said, "You know, has your mother has your mother been has your mother been has your mother's property been counted?" And you know there was a conflict ensued between both of them, um, a violent conflict, physical conflict, and then you know, that's kind of how the entire thing cascaded. And then it went from there before you knew what was going on. It had spread to other markets, you know, women settlements and organizations in other parts of the East. You know, they essentially marched to the, you know, to the administrator, to the colonial, you know, administrator's office, and you know, demanded that, you know, um, you know, cease and desist. You know, such a thing will not happen here. It will not tax us. We're already, you know, under the jackboots of, you know, imperialism and colonialism and so on. People are poor, not by choice, and um, so we will not be taxed. And um, yeah, of course, several, you know. Um, damaging casualties were suffered, and you know that sort of cascaded elsewhere in the country. People were taking a stand. At the same time, you had a lot of um, you know Nigerian journalists. Um, the journalism industry was growing. You had a lot of pressmen. You had the likes of uh, Herbert Macaulay. Virtually, virtually, you know, the first set of of, of uh, you know nationalists. Most of them had press backgrounds. You know, what it was of this world. The Azikaways, the you know, Herbert Macaulay's, Antonio Naros, and so on and so forth. But I want to just make the point that it was actually it actually started not from this guy, but from the market march, you know, where first for the first time ever since colonialism, people stood up and said, you know, enough is enough, no more. And then there was this swelling pride that yeah, we can actually say no to something. And even if we suffer casualties, our mark has been made. And you know, these people who are essentially invaders. Have taken notice of the fact that we've taken a stand. Um, so yeah, certain concessions were were made, you know. So women were not taxed as a result of that, even though they suffered, you know, a lot of casualties. Um, and then you had, you know, a lot of cascades and um, throughout. Similar story as well with the Ebba women's uprising, you know, a similar situation. This happened in the West. Um, um, the leader of that was, of course, Finivayo and Ransom Kuti, you know. Again, women were about to be taxed um, by an appendage of, you know, British colonial interests. So native authority, uh, yeah. the Alake. Yeah, the Alake of, 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 of um, Ebalan. And of course, that uprising led to his eventual abdication of the throne, right? So you had all these pockets of events happening um, here and there around the country. You know, you had the railway workers strike um, later on in the 40s. Um, but also said to Nigerians all over than all over Nigeria that yeah we can actually um, stand for something um, and these guys will actually take notice by virtue of the fact that they are making so much money of us they're making they're having so much global influence of us and we are on the bottom rung of, of you know the food chain um, but if we stand up you know with one voice and, and say one thing you know and you know we can. You know, it's a long road, it's a long journey, but, you know, we can have our say. And yeah, that, those are kind of the pockets of things that happened. 
that led eventually to you know the birth of a political and um, you know a, 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 this national you know consciousness that was growing in Nigeria and then that led eventually to Nigerian independence. I want to jump into you. So you talked about uh, the Real Workers Union, right? And they were essentially at, at, at this point in time in the 1940s, they were the growing elite. They, you know, the railway job was one of the most sought after jobs in the country at that time. Um, but due to uh, the cost of living allowance and some of the other taxes that had been imposed on them, uh, they essentially started to protest. Right, led by Michael Modu, who would become, who would later become the president of the Workers Union as a whole, uh, he essentially led uh, another movement. Do you? What, what are your thoughts on the Real Workers Union in terms of like the impacts? Uh, you know, the ultimate like leading up to party movements. And the reason why I'm asking this, right, is because you know we just talked about Fumilayo Ransomekuti, who eventually became part of the NCNC and was part of the. Uh, uh, delegates that were sent to uh, essentially make a pitch for uh, independence later on in the, uh, or no, to protest the uh, Richards Constitution later on in the 1940s, right? Imodu also uh, became a part of the NCNC as well. What do you think, uh, you know, I guess, how do you reconcile the, uh, the those working unions with evolving into the political parties? Or do you feel like, you know, it kind of just exercise the same until they had no other options but to converge? Right. I, I think I think that's again another another really interesting um interesting you know point. Um so yeah I mean when you're talking about Nigerian nationalism unfortunately names like uh Michael Emodu are not names that you often hear, right? But right. It was a really it was a really risky position to put yourself into. Um, these guys were that's the British now. They they, they ran things in, in the country. They were they had you know they were an occupying force essentially. They were culturally supplanting you know um, they're culturally supplanting themselves in Nigeria. They were you know so it's, it's really just dangerous to put yourself in the in the crosshairs. I think that's really, I say that as a precursor to Michael Imodu because he was initially not the, um, you know, the labor leader, right? But the initial labor leader actually withdrew his name and refused to sign the documents, you know, towards the, the strike, you know, because he, I guess he realized how much of the, of the, how much, you know, the risk that would be to his personal safety. Eventually, or he Michael had been Imodu, threatened already, right? Or he, exactly, or he had been threatened already. Um, you know, and then Makinimudu, you know, went ahead and, and, and signed and by virtue of that became, you know, the leader of the, of the Railway Workers Union. Of course, he was put in prison. He was in prison for his efforts, you know, in doing that. But again, you know, it's, it's funny. I think it was, it was Victor Hugo who said that nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. Um, I, one can argue that actually by imprisoning, uh, Victor, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Michael Imudu, the British imperialists actually gave you know, actually strengthened the the, the union um, much more than they would have. It would have been strengthened if they had allowed him to just go through. Um, I think that's something that they realized, and that's why they avoided putting you know Fumilai Ransomkuti in prison, even though she was, um, you know, by their estimation, guilty of, of charges that were worth you know imprisonment. 
Oh, yeah. The company that you even mentioned, that, that, that was also something as you were saying that I was thinking about her too, right? Because they actually put her in prison when she resisted and said that she wasn't going to pay um, taxes, right? But then somebody anonymously paid her £3,000 bond. Yeah. With, with, against her wishes. Because she said, hey, I would eat the time, right? Knowing that, you know, that spending that time in prison would also have a significant impact and drive people to support her more, right? Somebody quietly paid that $3,000, right? Um, and where I read it, it was almost as if it was put to discredit her legitimacy and put it seem, make it seem like, you know, she had connections that maybe the other people wouldn't have. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I think you're you're very right. That was, I guess, that was a case of of them learning from the from their mistakes, right? Because from that, Mason Kuti would not have been able to afford three thousand three thousand pounds is a lot of money even today. <laughs> you know, exactly. it was a lot. It was it a lot more an insane amount. Yeah, an insane amount to to pay. Um, so whoever paid that money um, was likely to be associated with the you know colonial office. Um, so yeah, that was that was that was um, that was. You know that that was the that was a little bit of political maneuvering as far as they were concerned, but of course that didn't deter the movement. You know they kept on driving, they kept on you know that's the nationalist here. They kept on driving and kept on moving, and it was this these little pockets of resistance um, that led to you know once there was now the establishment of of the sense of um, of um, you know of course we we didn't go from we didn't go from uh, being you know a colony to to independence in one fell swoop, right? We had it was a steady drive. You know, we now went to the, the period where we have where we had uh, um, representatives in in parliament. Then went to the point where we had you know those representatives were usually appointees of the colonial office. Then we had, went to the point where we had you know actual voting voting rights you know being allowed. Um, then we went from there to having regional governments and um, still under a, a governor general who was you know, um, a colonial administrator. And then, of course, we went to now having, you know, um, our own, you know, Nigerian, um, you know, central government, and then from there to um, eventual independence. So, yeah, all these little pockets of events um, played the individual parts, you know, the, 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 the protesting, the, the, the organized, you know, civil um, disobedience, disobediences, the labor unions, um, the, the, the last railway union, the labor unions, you know, of course now galvanizing in a swelling, you know, political elite, you know, who had, you know, by and large studied, um, many of them have studied abroad, many of them have studied in the newly established, you know, Nigerian universities, you know, but again, I think it's important to pay attention to these guys who don't really get a lot of the plaudits because they were just as important, if not, if not more important as these guys who, you know, who we recognize today as so, the so-called, you know, founding fathers. Those guys, you know, were the unnamed people, the unnamed protesters, the unnamed Nigerians who fought wars, who um, were in the firing line, you know, directly in the firing line, you know, who, um, you know, went to prison and so on and so forth. Um, all these little efforts led to, you know, eventual Nigerian independence. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, they clearly laid the foundation, like these people that we're talking about. And if you're not clear, the, you know, the Women's War of 1929 uh, was led by Umayi Ura Oleka Oko. Uh, she was one of the, you know, she was the one who had the altercation with that sole native authority, right? And essentially uh, gathered the women in her region and um, Oloko and 
essentially galvanized them and, and that's how it spread regionally, right? Um, another person that, that we, you know, that we not, we, people don't talk about, uh, but was a huge inspiration, especially for Fumilai Ransomekuti, was uh, Chief Alimoto Kedewura, whose movement in 1932 and 1940 uh, also pushed for against taxation as well. Right, so there are a lot of these people here that we, we are probably not even going to get through all of their names that brought things that, that essentially inspired what was that ever that uh, later generation of the 1940s and 1950s to really have some sort of real impact. back a little bit though. So I want to go back to the 1939 bifurcation of the East and West by uh, Bernard uh, Bernard who was the governor at the time. Now, this I don't, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, right? But for me, uh, from most of the available records I've seen, right, it seems like the bifurcation, like the split between the of the South from the, to the East and the West was for administrative purposes only. It's not clear to me how this really helped with administering, administering the country or, and if, especially if it was the British officers in control, like, I don't, like, when I, when I keep reading this, right, I don't understand what the value was to there, especially when you think about the fact that um, there were so many other, uh, I guess, tribes in the middle belt of the country as well, right? Uh, like, that maybe that was the reason. I'm not sure. Right, but the 1939 split um, on the south into the east and west is something that I don't really understand the motivation for. What's what's your perspective on that? Did we able to come across anything that like any text that explores this? Yeah, I think I think that's another really you know <laughs> a really odd odd one. You know, um, I mean, what you're referring to is of course the the fact that you know what we had as you know what was formerly the southern. Um, protectorate was, you know, in 1939 um, divided into, you know, the western and the and the eastern region. Um, is 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 difficult to is it maybe a little bit speculative, right? But again, I just think they were trying to carve out um, of Nigeria. Um, you know, each new administrator would come in and then try and carve, try and either make a legacy for himself or just try and make things. Um, you know, according to his own understanding, um, administratively easier or or more affordable, you know, or you know, you know, in terms of administration. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe that was just the the, the understanding of of uh, of, of Bertillon to that you know to that effect. That's why he carved out you know the west and the and the east um, from the south. Right. Again, maybe it was just a system of of divide and conquer because even at that time. Um, there was already uh, intimations of, of you know, a growing galvanization. You know, Nigerians were beginning to galvanize, were beginning to have a sense of, you know, collective pride and so on. So maybe that was a, a sense of let's carve out, let's carve out two regions out of one, and then you know, take these, take you know, these people back to a sense of, you know, primordial, um, you know, parochial interests once once again. You know, because of course, when you carve out that, that those regions, you then have to. Um, Appoint representatives, and it's uh, it's it's a system of divide and rule, really. And um, when you, when you come down to it, it's not it's not dissimilar to even what we see in modern day politics, where 
you know, if if you see that something is is uh, is swelling and is growing towards something, you know, that is essentially going to threaten the powers that be, you have a lot of you know divide and conquer techniques. You have people who are setting up, uh, you know, maybe I can even draw a parallel between that and um, the deposed Emir, you know, Sanusi, who, you know, whilst being an Emir, was it was still a social critic, was still. Uh, um, speaking speaking up a lot about the social ills of you know that were being carried out in the north, and then you had right. his essential essentially his emirates being um, you know divided up into I think two or three or four smaller you know emirates, and then of course Calvin, um, you know, all that leading up to him being deposed eventually. So perhaps that was just a thinking, you know, perhaps it was just a matter of these guys are starting to unite. Let's uh, let's scatter them <laughs> again. Right. I mean. No, I, I, you know, I, I definitely feel the same exact way. <laughs> I just wanted to like, because, you know, the, here are a few things, right? Uh, the northern and southern, right? I, I understand what Lugard was doing, right? The, the, the north was broke. They were already dependent on some stipends from the south. And it just made sense to connect both regions, especially if that gives direct access to the, to the ports, right? In Lagos and Calabar and, you know, Port Harcourt Moon. Right. So I can understand conceptually why they wanted to do that and make that ease of access. But for the East and West at the, at the 1939, it, there is no real basis economically, administratively at all for, for, for breaking it up into different parts. But when you start to think about the fact that we have the Abawa Men's Rights in 1929, we have Ilewura in 1932 and 1940, right? Um, we have some of the workers' unions, uh, and the miners. Uh, protesting as well uh, during this period of time, it starts to explain because all of that is happening in the south, right? It's not happening in the same way in the north. So to your point, you know, that idea of divide and conquer, you know, it, 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 I can't see anything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't see any other reason or any other motivation for doing that. One thing that kind of jumped out to me, right? So when, when I was looking at that, I was, I was asking a lot of questions, right? And I found something really interesting. Okay, so this this is an excerpt from um, Emmanuel Oladipo Joe, uh, his paper on the politics of formation of alliance of governments in multi ethnic states, really focusing on Nigeria between 1954 and 1957. But he, I guess, went to provide some context for his paper, right? And I found some of these this interesting quotes, right? So Hugh, Hugh Clifford, who was uh, uh, I guess the governor general of Nigeria in the 1918 period, shortly after uh, uh, Lugard left, uh, had an interesting view on on how Nigeria should be set up. So I want to just read you a quote for what he said. I'm going to read you what happened after. So um, he says, "The idea at which we should aim, as I hope, is the eventual evolution not only of an amalgamated but an but a united Nigeria." It's essential that the coordination of all administrative work, political and non-political alike, should be directed from a single center from which alone a comprehensive view of all the components and interdependent parts of the machine can be obtained. So his idea or his view was basically a united front in terms of the country. And he had a lot of criticism for how Lugard had approached um, essentially keeping it separate and keeping the regions and even the tribes separate, right? What's interesting to me is that um, when he made this proposal to the colonial office, they dismissed it and they described it as revolutionary, right? So 
A year later, right? This, so he, he, this, he made this proposal in 1919. A year later, um, this is what Clifford says. And, and, in, in a, uh, and the excerpt is basically, to retain his job, Clifford abandoned his unity proposal and reversed his position on Nigerian unity. Thus, in his address to the Nigerian Council on 19 December 1920, he poured on this unrestrained invective on the National Congress of British West Africa for dreaming a West African nation which he dismissed as, a, as an absurdity. He particularly spurred the concept of Nigerian unity, which he said was unrealistic and unachievable, something he had just proposed a year before. He said, assuming that this collection of self-contained and mutually independent native states separated from one another, as many of them are by great distances, by differences of history and traditions, and by ethnological, racial, tribal, political, social, and religious barriers, were capable of being welded into a single homogeneous nation, a deadly blow would therefore be struck at the very root of national self-government in Nigeria, which secures to each separate people with the right to maintain its identity. This idea that for us to be united is, is comes at the sacrifice of our individual and tribal identity is something I kind of question. And we have heard so many different examples. Aziku, we felt this, you know, it's, um, the same way to some extent. We had this chief body, Thomas, who also felt this way to some extent. So it's really hard for me to even pick a line or put a position. But what I thought was interesting was that the British colonial government saw that as a threat, right? And this is as far back as 1919, you know? So... Uh, from there, at first, do you have any thoughts on that whole Clifford Constitution and, you know, that perspective at all? I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting take. Um, it's important to see how, you know, I mean, again, just again about, about considering individual, um, individual uh, interests, right? So like, like you rightly said, he did that, he reversed his position in order to save his job. So, right. you know, one, one, one can look at it as how many, how many decisions, you know, generally um, in terms of, you know, pre-colonial Nigeria, how many decisions were clearly looked at as terrible, bad, you know, unfair, totally not in the interest of the indigents of the place. But the people go ahead and still carry out just based on the fact that it was the opinion and the view of you know the colonial administration and the home office um, of which they were servants, right? So that's just just one example. But I wonder how many <laughs> how many similar examples there are, you know, throughout you know our pre-colonial or rather our colonial history, and you know possibly even post-colonial history because um, a similar debate. Um, has erupted many, many times in in, in post uh, independent Nigeria. Um, mm -hmm. You know, first of all, the debates about whether or not we're better off as a federation. You know, whether whether or not we're better off as a confederation. You know, whether or not the regional government is better. You know, whether or not a strong central government is better. You know, so these debates have sprung up. You know, and I just wanted to you know make the point that. Um, it's interesting to note that, of course, individual interests, you know, not even regional interests now, but really, literally individual interests, something as, as uh, primal as a man getting to keep his job also played a part in how everything else, you know, cascaded from that point. So it's just a really interesting thing to consider. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, uh, you know, for me, it's it's also how that persisted. You know, like I just said, that secure, like there are a lot of other influential people who really started to buy into this. And I, I, know, I, know, I can imagine it wasn't for the same intent. And it might, might have been due to maybe some of the seeds that were already sold uh, this early in the game, right? Like, so it's hard to say where this game came from, but just the idea that there was an opportunity for that to be attempted, right? And, and you know, I think now I want to kind of, you know, I, I really explore that because I think it informs some of the other things that happen. So what what is your understanding of um, the Richards Constitution of 1946. Um, the Richards, the Richards Constitution. I mean, first of all, I think the the uh, the term <laughs> um, Constitution itself is is a little bit of a stretch um, <laughs> because this was essentially, you know, when you, when you think of a Constitution, you think of a couple of people sitting down together and, um, you know, some consultation, um, you know, some representatives from each of the key regions, each of the key tribes, each of the, you know, every little pocket of identity in Nigeria or in a place having their say. But that was not the, that was not the case. That was essentially, you know, the unilateral, you know, work of, of, um, of colonial, you know, administrators. Um, so, I mean, naturally, um, it was a first, you know, wide-reaching uh, rejection um, by most, you know, nationalists of, of the day. Um, but it was it was a progression, right? It was a progression from um, the initial constitution we had, you know, to the Richard Constitution. It was still not really a constitution in that it was it was basically promulgated. It was like a decree. It was handed down, you know, to us. Um, but you know, it it was still a step. You know, towards what would eventually become, you know, greater um, representation. Um, so, of course, it's it's uh, gave a little bit more leeway than the Clifford Constitution. Um, first of all, the, after the Clifford Constitution, so that was had when no had, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, because he had no choice. You know, of course, he had no choice. Um, the Clifford it was after the Clifford Constitution that. You know, right. we began to have um, you know, political parties. The first, you know, political party in Nigeria was formed, you know, as a result of the Clifford Constitution by um, Abu Makali. Um, then, of course, the, yeah, yeah, the the, the NNP. Then um, you had, you know, the 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 Richard Constitution, which you know we had um, the House of Chiefs and the House of Assembly in the north, um, in the west, and in the east. You know, of course, many of these people were still appointees um, of the, the colonial administration, but at least there was a little bit more leeway, you know, um, you know, than you had in the in the in the initial you know constitution. So yeah, I think it was just um, something that was a step by step, you know, uh, uh, leading you know again um, towards an, an eventual you know what would come after it, which was of course the, the Macpherson. Um, constitution and then you know of course um eventual you know um total um self -rule. all right so um before we get into the my first constitution I there are a few things I I just <laughs> that just jumped out to me like first it was it was kind of a little weird for me personally even wrapping my head around the Richards constitution and like what it meant like I, I mean I know what the stipulations were or what mm -hmm. it meant and you know what that would do right so as mm -hmm. I started like you know kind of putting things together <laughs> One of the things I realized was that 
Um, the fact that all the influential positions were handpicked by the governor was one thing, right? But it was also that, like, <laughs> um, it did nothing to alter the political equation for the national nationalist movement and the emerging educated elites. So these are people who were lawyers, doctors, who had some political uh, ability or at least organization, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. like, they had no, like, so after this just constitution, it changed nothing for the political elite or the elite that, I guess, I guess the word I'll use is the educated elite that would be able to, you know, effectively help govern or help pass on the people's, uh, you know, I guess, interests, right? Yeah. Some of the some of the high points from that from the Richards Constitution, right? I'm just going to read down some of the notes I made because I think I just did a horrible job explaining that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so first, Europeans dominated the legislative and executive council. The constitution was drafted without Nigerian inputs. No surprise there, I guess. Constitution gave the governor absolute power to nominate members, which he essentially just depended on the so native authorities who were already kind of, you know, I guess compliant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Voting rights uh, uh, depends on the level of income. And if you made it, you had to make above $100 um, annually, uh, £100 annually, and also be a man to have any voting rights. Mm. Uh, the country was then divided into three, uh, into three at, at this point, and Nigerians were made to focus on differences by region. So mm. I think that ties into the point you made about, um, I think you said it was the House of Assembly. And, yeah. uh, so uh, do you want to explore that a little bit more? Because I, 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 you know, I kind of understand it, but I don't. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, is I mean, I think the most striking, you know, takeaway there is really. Um, you know, again, an emphasis on on the regions, right? Um, I, I, just, I just think that it's a case of where, where, at whatever point, it served the the you know the the British Home Office to promote um, one Nigeria. Um, they went ahead and did that, but at whatever point they felt threatened by one Nigeria, they went ahead and um, allowed us to um, you know focus once again on our differences, and I think that's where. That's kind of what the region, the, the richest constitution, you know, did, um, in that they created regional, you know, creation of regional um, houses of assembly, right? Um, each region, you know, receiving, you know, revenue from, you know, the central um, government. Um, again, these guys were handpicked, right? So it's difficult to not do the bidding of someone who, you know, literally, you know, puts you in office. Um, so you know those were some of the some of the um, should I say disadvantages and some of the downsides of 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 the Richards Constitution. Um, it brought us back to that you know focus. You know once we're getting this nationalistic view, it brought us back to that primordial you know let's focus on just our region and what we can extract you know from the center you know and essentially personal and regional um, um, and self interest you know creation of the regional house of assembly you know and of course, um, regardless of what was agreed upon in these regional houses of assembly, um, the governor general, um, you know, Richard himself still had veto power. So he could still say, yeah, no, <laughs> straight up, no, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with what you guys are saying. Um, but yeah, it's, it's again, it's interesting to note that even though these things were, were done to perpetuate, um, you know, British rulership, um, they still 
somehow couldn't withstand the drive um, towards, you know, um, independent Nigeria. And that's kind of why the Richards Constitution still had to be supplanted, you know, a couple of years later by, by the follow-up um, McPherson Constitution. Right. So, yeah, so it's no surprise why the Richard Constitution fell in space. Um, uh, but what, so, so later, like you said, the 1951, the McPherson Constitution uh, gets implemented after the failure of the Richard Constitution. And this time around, there is an executive and legislative arm in both the central and regional governments. Uh, it's been argued that the McPherson Constitution gave too much power to the region um, to regions and thereby de- devaluing national interests. Uh, you know, there, 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 it, it, it was part of the text I read was uh, that the, the leaders of the parties uh, felt more comfortable staying in their regional positions than uh, essentially uh, going and serving the federal government. And they typically sent their deputies to do that. I'm curious, what was your perspective on, on the McPherson Constitution? Um, well... I think you pretty much. I think you pretty much hit you know the nail on the head. Um, you know, the, I think the first important thing to note is that there was a little bit more um, in terms of in terms of you know consultation. You know, um, by the governor general, that's McPherson himself, with with the engines of the land, he would consult with the ethnic thought leaders, the political leaders, and so on and so forth, um, and then went ahead and still you know drafted the constitution. So it was still handed down, but at least there was a little bit more, um, um, you know, more of contribution um, from yeah, yeah, exactly right. contribution. Um, you know, but like you, again, like you said, it allowed for a two a two level government, um, which you know, which of course was the regional governments and and the central and the central government. The central government was called um, you know the legislative um, council, um, and of course the central governments. Um, jurisdictions would affect every part of the country, whereas the regional governments would affect only their regions. But I think it's just telling um, to see how weak, essentially, the central governments were, being that the party, the actual, you know, the, the parties that existed at that time, um, they preferred to um, to send their to send their, their surrogates into government that's into the center, you know. So, for instance, the premier of the of the of the uh, northern region, um, also doubling as the Sardana of, uh, of Sokoto, um, Ahmad Bello, he would rather send um, the deputy party leader who was Tafua Belawa into the central government and still and chose to remain you know, the premier of the, of the northern region. So those were some of the interesting uh, you know, things that came out of, of, of the, of the McPherson constitution. Um, but yeah, it was still... Again, it was, just, it was still a step-by-step process, if you like, um, towards the eventual, you know, emergence of, of you know, a drive towards, you know, independent, independent Nigeria. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much, um, you know, the the high points of that. The central legislature, um, also with provisions for regional governments, um, you know, um, a wider representation in terms of, you know, more input being made into the actual drafting of the constitution. Um, then of course the, the constitution made it possible for um, ministers, that's Nigerian ministers now, on on both central and regional levels. Um, so yeah, they, they, I think that kind of laid the framework for the the practice of federalism, which we had, you know, at 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 Nigerian independence. Um, 
but yeah, of course, it's still it was still led and headed by um, by by the veto power of the governor, who was still the colonial administrator. So yeah, it was not it was not the done deal, um, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. They said that it 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 made it more regional, but I don't fully understand that. Right. So, does the, you know, I know there was a regional legislative council as well where people contested seats, right? And uh, there was the central as well where those seats, like, okay, so one of the things that comes into mind, right? Like, so this is 1951, and this is by, right before the 1951, I guess this is right before the 1951 elections that year, right? But for me, it, is it that uh, you contest for seats in your region? Right, so all the different parties within that region contest for seats, and then once you have those positions, those seats now contest for uh, contest for the central legislative council. Or uh, like, how do you understand that? If you if you do, you know, at all. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a little bit um, a little bit fuzzy, but you know, my understanding of the situation was um, essentially you have regional elections. Um, um, these regional elections are important because um, the the majority in each of these regions gets to nominate, you know, who they want to serve at the center. Um, of course, the majority as well gets to nominate, um, um, you know, ministers, both regional ministers and and ministers who would serve in the central government. Um, but the regions were not necessarily the regional. Uh, the regional uh, uh, elections were not necessarily um, run the way we have them now. So, for instance, you wouldn't necessarily have to be an indigenous of the West um, to contest for elections in the West. You know, you wouldn't have to necessarily be an indigenous of the North to contest elections in the North. As long as your party had um, representation um, and as long as you lived in that place, you could run for elections under any party, you know, under any, um, in any region. Um, I say this to say that um, um, Nambi Azikiwe's party actually won the majority um, regional, you know, seats in parliament in 1951. Um, right. um, that was the NCNC, um, National Council right. of Nigeria and Cameroons. They actually, you know, beat the action group, you know, in that regard. Um, but again, you know, by by design or by or by chance, since the, the McPherson Constitution gave the region so much power, um, much more power than the Richards Constitution, you know, gave the regional, um, you know, um, um, leaders. Um, right. People, again, I don't know whether they just woke up to the fact that this was actually something that was very important. So that was the first time that we had, you know, what we now know as um, cross-carpeting in Nigerian politics, where what we essentially had was... Um, People who ran on one platform and won, you know, seats in parliament on that platform, um, essentially cross-carpeting overnight to the other party. So Nnamdi um, Azikiwe was set to actually become, um, you know, premier of of the Western Region by virtue of the fact that his party, the NTNC, won, you know, majority seats in parliament. However, many of the candidates from his um, of party of from his party, the NTNC. Um, based on lobbying from Obafemi Awolowo, went ahead to cross carpets, you know, to the action group, which was uh, Awolowo's party. Um, 
again, because Awolowo was a Yoruba man and, you know, they felt, I guess, how can, you know, an Igbo man come ahead and, and, um, and run things in the Western region? So I think that's just sort of a precursor to the underlying tensions that existed even in, um, even in pre-colonial, you know, and um, colonial Nigeria, that there was actually a possibility that someone from the East that's indigenously would actually be a premier in the West. Now, it's, it's, I think it's, it's very difficult to envision that in today's Nigeria, but in Nigeria of the 50s, it's not so difficult to envision it because um, these guys, they were indigenous only in, only in that they were born in one part of the country. In fact, I think, if I'm not wrong, I think Zeke might have been born in the North or in the West. He was obviously living in, in the West, in Ibadan, and he spoke, you know, fluent Yoruba. I think he also f- spoke fluent Hausa. So, you know, it, his, there was no reason to believe that he would not serve, you know, Western interests if being voted into as premier of the Western region. But I think 1951 was damaging in that it, uh, it really brought, you know, to, to the fore um, the things that we have now in, in, in Nigerian politics, where I've lived in Lagos for 20 plus years, um, you know, someone speaks fluent, is fluent in the, in the language of the, of the region or the states, but still once he or she wants to run for office, that thing of where are you, where are you, where are your parents from, where are you an indigenous right. crop up again. So I think that was sort of what laid the foundations for that. And again, whether that was a design of the colonial administration to keep us permanently divided, or whether that was just um, a matter of uh, the the political um, maneuvering and savviness of uh, of uh, Bafemi Awolowo, that is something that is still speculating. But nonetheless, I think in terms of a notion of one Nigeria, that was a little bit damaging, you know, to right. to, to to Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, let's speculate some more because. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the way I personally feel, because it, it, um, the richest constitution was barely um, uh, contested by uh, the NCNC, right? The, yeah. it, it was it was in protest of the richest um, richest constitution that the NCNC set on a, a nationwide tour, essentially getting people support delegates from all over the country, even in especially in the north, um, to essentially say that. Uh, this this is you know I guess this should be unconstitutional and it should be changed, yeah. right? Because they were I think more more than most of the other two major parties much more national in their entity, right? Like they they were a coalition of workers unions, different unions around the country, and they they had established themselves nationwide, right? Maybe due to also the you know the impression and the and the and the respect for Harvard Macaulay uh, prior to this. Right, so so it, it to me when when I look back at this, it, it now becomes very clear why they were completely against this. Now, if you look at the action group which came up from Igbo Dudua, which was uh, essentially uh, to unite the Yoruba people, and we already have the MPC, which is focused on you know the Northern People's Congress, which is focused on mm-hmm. uh, yeah. on the North. Right, you can see why they saw this coming from a mile away and. Uh, hugely contested this, right? Because, you know, this would essentially make it 
extremely difficult to be able to campaign in both areas, which they were looking to do, and which, honestly, most yeah. of the parties should have been looking to do across the board, right? One of the things I start to notice when you look at the 1951, when, when you look at the seats, right? Um, uh, do I have this in front of me? Uh, there are about, what, a uh, hundred and... Uh, I can't remember the number of seats available for the North, right? But in both the 1951, 1954, like pretty much every election, the North never bothered to uh, uh, contest for seats outside the North. By securing, you know, maybe over 75% of their seats, the available seats in the North, they were essentially going to be able to secure a majority in most of these governments. Or not a majority, but like a, um, enough seats to, 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 to form a majority, right? At yeah. least in terms of getting coalition. So what I, I kind of started to recognize was that, uh, you know, this, this idea of the regional thing, uh, even though I don't fully understand it within the context of the councils, what 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 becomes clear is that there is no there is no interest by any of the other parties to secure the, the basis of being a federal government and being involved in the federal government was by securing your region first. Yes, right. As opposed to securing whatever seats are available, depending on the party members that you have representing all these different regions. Yeah. So um, that's one of the you know lasting legacies I kind of start to take away from the Richards American. Which has a first institution. Well, like, were there any other impact things that you noticed? Like, you know, maybe with um, uh, uh, the discontents, or like, were there any things you noticed following that? Like, basically, pros and cons. When you actually, did you see any pros uh, from both of those constitutions? I, I wouldn't necessarily see that. I see any that I see any uh, any pros, aside the fact that. Each constitution was sort of just a lighter, uh, a lighter, a little bit more lenient version of, of the previous one, you know. So, for instance, where the previous, you know, where the where the 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 the, the richest constitution um, appointed, you know, regional administrators and so on, the uh, the Magwaza constitution actually gave the people the chance to vote in, you know, their own their own leadership, you know. So each one was was pretty much just a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit more lenient. I think it's, it's even important to to to, to mention that, um, for instance, Sinzambi Azikiwe opposed both, you know, the Richards and the uh, and the Macpherson constitutions. In fact, let me actually just read a, a direct quote, um, you know, from Zeke in uh, 1951, um, um, and I quote: "So far as I am concerned, personally, my aim is to try to get a majority." in the regional and central legislatures um, is to firmly entrench NCNCs in a strategic position where we, could, where we could create a deadlock and paralyze the machinery of government and thus rip the McPherson constitution and, up and usher in a democratic one. This means that if we come to power, we shall not only refuse to become ministers, but we shall use our majority to prevent budgets from being passed. So essentially, Zeke was running on a platform of um, let's get a majority into government um, and let's deadlock, you know, the machinery, of, the machinery of government such that we can effectively protest the constitution and actually entrench, you know, the constitution that is more democratic and probably use that um, that social capital to accelerate the drive, you know, towards independence. 
again, I think it's it's a it's a it's a funny one because it's a nationalistic approach as against the regional approaches of of you know Northern People's Congress, which the name is the name gives it away, and the Action Group, which is a which you know its progenitor was actually still a regional interests you know proliferation um, um, group, right? So maybe Zeke was in a sense the only the only true nationalist. But then again, he was also the most um, politically naive of, of the three, you know, regional leaders, if you like, because he was the only one who felt as though, um, who had a very, very idealistic view of, of Nigerian politics, you know, than the more um, politically savvy and hard-nosed, um, you know, uh, Ahmad Bello and Nafami uh, Awolowo. Um, so I mean, I yeah. think it's just funny to note. I mean, I, I, I often wonder what what the situation would have been if Zeke has got, had gotten his way. You know, what the situation would have been for Nigeria. You know, going forward, um, what Nigeria would have looked like going forward. Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting speculation to to make. jump a little bit so uh, a, a couple years later uh, we have the threat of uh, the northern region of secession right and the reason you know like I guess I can let me just put a, a little preamble here for anybody that's not familiar uh, my understanding here is that after Anthony Enahoro tabled the motion for independence by 1956 the more nationalistic southern parties of the east and west were actively in favor, right? And this is these are two parties that have been putting heads for many years prior to this, right? Um, but the NPC are aware that they were behind in education and uh, people available to fill civil servant positions did not feel comfortable committed to that time, right? So uh, this drew significant vitriol and insults from not only the other parties but also the public, disheartened by the decision to hold off on independence. Um, do you think this was the right decision for the MPC? And how do you think you know, they could have possibly been won over, if possible? And that this that's speculated, right? Completely, but you know, just interested in hearing your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that was that was the first major threat of of secession that we had, you know, even prior to the eventual threats of, again, the northern region um, threatening to secede later on in the 1960s and the eventual um, secession of, of, the, of the eastern region, you know, um, that later became the Republic of Biafra. Um, but again, I think it's just down to, you know, sometimes we tend to be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, uh, condescending um, when it comes to the political sophistication of, of, of the Northern region, um, those guys, Absolutely. they were very uh, calculated. They were very, they were very, uh, you know, they were very effective in, in, their, in their political planning. They knew for a right. fact that they were not ready. They knew for a fact that they didn't measure up in terms of, in terms of, you know, education, in terms of social development to the rest of the country. So of course, if they would have had, you know, that uh, independence being uh, effected earlier on, 
they would have been on the backseat of, of, you know, of the new independent political Nigeria, right? And so they very cleverly um, wanted to entrench, you know, their political dominance, very cleverly wanted to entrench themselves in political, in a civil service, because as, as it existed then, um, you know, civil servants, you know, could work almost in any, pretty much in any part of Nigeria. It didn't matter where you were from, you know. Um, and I, I, there's a famous clip by, you know, the Sadana of Sokoto, Amadou Bello, where he said that, you know, actually in preparation for independence, that he was prepared to um, to consider, first of all, northerners and, you know, secondarily um, foreign nationals um, in terms of, you know, regional northern civil service before he would ever consider, you know, uh, a, a, a Igbo person or, or even a Westerner, right? And even if that would later be the case, he would consider them only on a contractual basis. So that just kind of showed you the mindset of, you know, where their minds were at. They were already afraid of um, political dominance in terms of education and in terms of um, sociocultural development. And they wouldn't have, you know, the only thing that he had to hold on at that point was the fact that all the regions by virtue of still being run by a central colonial administrative authority were still on a level playing ground. Once you had the, the, the I would say, I'll go as far as saying, once you had the threats of independence, of an early independence in the 1950s, um, it's easy to see why they would resist that, you know. And um, I don't think, I don't think uh, the other regions could have done anything to convince them otherwise, because again, they were protecting their own, their own self-interests. They were protecting the interests of their people, of the Northern people. So I don't think there's a lot that's, you know, any Western or any Eastern regional leader could have said um, to convince them, which is why they went the other way of trying to use, you know, ridicule and pressure and, you know, those other kinds of means to, to get them to see eye to eye. And in response, of course, the threats was the, the, the immediate response was, you know, since independence right now was out of the, was out of the question, we're going to secede. We're going to secede, right. you know. So yeah, that was kind of how that that kind of came about that threat of secession. Yeah, I mean, like when when I look at this, right, to your point out of yet, I don't really think there's much they could have done, but there is something that I think about, right? Because uh, that just, I think that there could have been more empathy on the side of the south, because you know, like like we said, like these guys were very politically astute and they understood exactly what was going on. Right now, you know, obviously some of these issues were self-imposed in the sense that they did reject missionaries and uh, Western education in the region because they looked at it as a threat, right? And by the time they were aware of what was going on, it was kind of late. So I understood, understand that they had essentially created some of this uh, on themselves. But you know, in good faith, you can't see that you know this is an this is an this is a gap that they're not just going to be willing to concede, and you can't expect expect them to concede it. So it's either you're looking at it with a you know it's a, it's a level of arrogance or just lack of concentration, right? But when I look at that, I kind of get it. I understand why they needed that time to do that, and I think if there might have been some support or some understanding or some sort of like good faith on uh, like understanding, I think that would have. I've absolutely 
affected the perspective of those um, of those leaders in the, in a way that it didn't, right? Because ultimately, what happened was really cool. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know what they considered disrespect, and there was a lot you know there was a lot of bad blood following that event because I think it happened in the Western region or when this was tabled, right? So this bitter taste. Um, um, you know, like you said, led to a third of, uh, of secession. And it, there was also subsequent rioting following um, when AG delegates visited Kano later on, right? This led to 277 casualties and 36 deaths for both Northerners and Southerners, right? So there was enough, you know, I guess, fury that when, uh, you know, uh, AG delegates went over to Kano uh, later on that year, um, it literally led to riots, right? So clearly, that, those were really, really damaging. That was a really damaging response on what ended up being both sides. You know, uh, how do you compare this to what happened later on in 1966, though? Or 1967, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the parallels are very interesting to, to, to look at. Um, on the one hand, um, you had a a people who essentially felt that they were justified in their in their um, their quest for secession by virtue of the fact that they were they would have been um, they would have been uh, in terms of progress they were not quite at the level as of the other regions and in response to that the regions ended up you know ridiculing them and that led to a riot right. Um, Fast forward a few years later, and this, this same region was, was firmly against another region seceding um, by virtue of them being killed, you know. So on the one hand, you want to leave a place because you're being uh, verbally insulted, and that even leads to a riot. On the other hand, you don't want to understand how another group of people wants to leave the Federation within the context of them being literally hunted down and killed. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that just goes to show that, again, Nigeria is just made up of a bunch of collective, you know, regional, personal, tribal self-interests. And anyone is willing to change their position on any matter um, going on, you know, in, in, in the course of time by virtue of what they stand to gain or lose. So from early on in Nigeria, we already saw that there was no real um, there was no real position based on hard ideology. There was no real position right. based on principle. Everything was down to what I can gain or what I can lose. Self-interest, you know. And um, you know, one can argue that that's that's neither here nor there. But it's just interesting to note that to note that you know, as a precursor to kind of where we are now, because even as bad as things were back then, um, obviously they're much worse now. You know. So I think a, a bad thing allowed to continue never gets better on its own. It always it always gets worse. So what, what we considered self-interest uh, or regional interest was regional interest in, 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 in a sense. It was my people must have education, my people must have um, upward social mobility, my people must have healthcare, my people must have you know, a right to, to life and liberty and, 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 and justice. Right. That, has, that has now devolved into my family must have <laughs> you know, this. So whereas people at least went to government back in the day to protect the interests of their people, um, of their region, of their tribe, whatever, you know, what have you, people are not going into the government today to protect the smallest units, which is their family or themselves right. in, in particular. 
ultimately themselves. It's, it's, it's a zero sum yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a zero sum game. It literally always devolves to self, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I believe, even back then, it was for self. You know, they just weaponized um, tribal and ethnic tensions to their advantage. It, it was always for self, you know. It, it, for the, it, the, in the cases where what I also noticed is that the people who did it not for self, who did it for their region, who did it for nationalism, whatever the case may be, quite often ended up looking stupid because yes. <laughs> <a> person, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so it's yeah. just like you know, it's 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 it's, it's just consistent across the board. as well. Uh, we talked about a few other things in terms of the region of this as well, but what were some of the major insights you gleaned that maybe uh, our, the listeners will, should take away with them or at least mull over? Yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just been a very interesting you know, exercise to, to go through that's considering all the things that happened um, right down from the colonial period um, all the way down to you know, Nigeria's independence, you know, and everything in between, you know, um, you know, first of all, the fact that, um, the fact that we didn't win our independence on, uh, in the battlefield, as it were, in the, in the literal, you know, war front or, you know, battlefield doesn't mean that we didn't, that independence wasn't, wasn't hard fought. And, um, it was hard fought by, you know, people whose names you don't, you know, really hear today. People who perhaps didn't even think that they were fighting or think that they had a, a part to play in the national calculus, but whose um, contributions were just as important as any other, you know, as the political elites, you know, in Nigeria, right? So I think that's a key takeaway that you you never know what your little what your little uh, your little resistance against you know the infringement of your rights will birth. Um, if I can just draw a very wild, wild parallel, um, who would have thought that, you know, um, you know, the video that circulated, you know, during the Black Lives Matter movement of a, of a man, a black man being, you know, killed in broad daylight um, by the police, who would have thought that would, you know, cascade into, you know, what we saw in, in America last last year. So one ever knows, right. you know, where, where your little your little resistance or your little... You know, sticking for standing for your rights or sticking, you know, to doing the right thing for yourself and for your people would would lead to end up. Um, but again, you know, there's no nobody has no one has a monopoly on 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 right or wrong. So the the people that we call nationalists and 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 our founding fathers today, it's clear to see that they were still driven by parochial interests, by selfish interests, you know, by a desire maybe even to write their names in the annals of history. You know, beyond any, uh, you know, any altruistic, you know, motives. Um, but with that being said, um, there were still people who, um, you know, by and large, were trying to secure the best for their people, um, either by virtue of um, whether that would serve them personally, whether that was, you know, would serve their region generally. But they were still trying to do, um, you know, from all indications, what was best for their people. Um, but what we pretty much see is a gradual decline 
And I think it's important to mention the part that the military had to play in that. I mean, I don't want to go too deeply into that because we're not considering, we're not really considering that um, in this period. But um, essentially the excesses of the politicians in, you know, Nigeria's uh, early independence days, you know, led to the incursion of the military who themselves turned out to be worse, you know, than the people that they were trying to, to depose. Um, right. So there are there are basically implications of every little and big thing that happens in in Nigerian history, Nigerian politics, and I just kind of want our generation to be awake and aware, awake and aware of that fact. You know, um, who would have thought that you know a, a, a couple of of people and many of whom were students, you know, spending the night outside of the Lagos State House of Assembly would birth you know, the NSAS movements or the rebirth of the NSAS movement and all that it was to become, you know, there's no really, there's really no going back from, from there. We are now in a point where we are thinking of Nigeria as a political entity as it really, as it really should be, right? For all our, for all our criticisms of, of the older political class, there are people who are willing to fight and die for what they believe in. And until we kind of get to that point, they're going to they're going to keep on being in the in the mainstay of power, and um, they didn't. Uh, power was not given to them on a platter of gold. I don't think it's going to be given to us on a platter of gold. So yeah, I, I think if the key takeaway, you know, for me is that, you know, power is always something that is hard fought, um, and it's 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 not what you do with that power that is important. But you know, if we're going to be very very. Uh, very, very, very frank with ourselves. Um, the people who, you know, wrested power from the colonial powers, um, you know, fought tooth and nail for that independence. The people who, you know, won elections, you know, in the newly independent Nigeria, fought tooth and nail um, for that power. The people who wrested power from those nationalists and those politicians, talking about the military, they fought tooth and nail, you know, for those. The people who, um, went on to, again, wrest power again from the military governments before to nail, you know, for those, for that power. And the people who are going to wrest power again from our pseudo-democratic, um, you know, political system are going to fight to and nail. So I just kind of want everyone to be prepared for that. So, you know, if you're going to be in diaspora, you know, fighting for that, do that. If you're going to be in Nigeria, fighting for that, do that. If you're going to be contesting for political office, do that. If you're going to be, you know, a fundraiser, do that. If you're going to be, you know, tweeting and and um, and you know, raising funds and you know, so on and so forth, do that. But everyone kind of has their part to play. But very key to notice that it starts with a a political and um, um, historical and cultural um, education and understanding. You need to know where we're coming from to know how we got here, and then to know. How we're going to get into the future. So yeah, that's kind of like my, my key takeaways. That was beautifully said. Um, I don't think I have any more to add to that. Thank you, Chukadi, for taking the time. Um, very, very much appreciated. And I hope people who are listening to this podcast learn a lot from, you know, and make the connections that we seem to be making as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Asai. It's been like a super great pleasure. It's been yeah, it's been a journey, it's been an experience, and um, yeah, I really hope people, um, you know, take one or two things um, from this, uh, from this uh, 
episode. episode down. First off, I'd like to thank Chukudi Okone for taking the time to sit with me. Um, it was a great conversation and I'm looking forward to chatting with you in the near future. If you haven't already, go check out his work on The Republic. Okay, so my take from this conversation is that Nigerians slowly and patiently or impatiently took the power back from the colonial government and in the process we realized our national identity. One major thing for me was that women entrepreneurs were a key life source in Nigeria's economy. And we don't go over that um, on the episode, but it's covered in the text. And they were a key to sparking that fight against exploitation. So right from the mid to late 1920s through the 1930s, there is a history of market women essentially fighting the excessive exploitation by the colonial government. One major takeaway for me too was that the colonial masters uh, focused on division as an effective tool and created a structure for exploitation, which had kind of already been there from the start, right? They did this through bifurcation, which was splitting the east and, and the west and the southern part of the country. They also used warrant chiefs who weren't necessarily uh, leaders, just people who they could co-opt and use to get achieve their ends, essentially. Um, and through the constitutional decrees where they gave some, but they always took something back. One thing that has stayed with me is the fact that our identity was built on collective resistance. It was built on a clear idea of who the enemy was. I don't think that enemy is any one tribe. I think it's greedy, corrupt, gaslighting, and bad faith leaders. And to be honest, I'm not sure what resistance should look like. Feel free to answer my questions or share your thoughts on this episode by writing to twotakesandapod at gmail.com. If that's too much stress, no problem. You can just follow me on social media at Two Takes on the Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Really active on Instagram. I'm looking forward to hearing whatever you have to say. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can find this wherever you find podcasts. And while you're there, show some love and give me five stars or a like. This has been Two Takes on the Pod. Thank you for listening. When I'm in the act of exploitance, I be we just be living in a trance, Lord. Oh my God, hallelujah. We want to feel it, means you feel in my flow, and then you know, say it's so, so. Hallelujah. In your house, when you in a motor, and you dare go slow. Hallelujah. Feel that this thing is affecting your being, and it's killing your soul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the thing where you see, don't make you hallelujah.